Hello, and welcome to The Vinyl Approach, Episode 7. My name is Tom Wilmoth. I've been publishing my thoughts on music and have been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular and unpopular music. The Vinyl Approach is a bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at a wide range of albums and artists. I use The Vinyl Approach to discuss specific things that interest me about musicians and their records. Today's episode is called John Lennon, I'm Happy Just to Dance with You. By that, I mean that I like to remember John Lennon as a musician and one who made some great music. Music that I think will endure. I don't go to John Lennon for political theory or for spiritual enlightenment. I play John's records to make me feel good, and they do. What doesn't make me feel good is the treatment that John's legacy must tolerate even now over four decades after his death. His best music is still great, while some of his recordings remain confounding. Albums like Life with the Lions, Two Virgins, The Wedding Album. These recordings make his Revolution No. 9 from the White Album seem mainstream. But John Lennon created these unusual albums and he wanted people to hear them. They are part of his story. Today I'd like to talk about some of the music associated with John that has been released since his death. As I discussed on an earlier Vinyl Approach podcast, record companies are not hesitant to put out posthumous recordings by their deceased artists. From Hank Williams to Jimi Hendrix, it is a common practice. Eventually, though, no matter what or how much is released, fame fades. As biographer Peter Goralnik has acknowledged, time must eventually diminish even Elvis Presley's once astounding level of celebrity. I once asked a country star why the late Lefty Frizzell had been largely forgotten, even in the world of country music. "'Cause Lefty ain't got no drummer,' I was told. This was not a reference to percussion. He meant that Frizzell did not have somebody actively promoting him, even in death. John Lennon proves to be no exception to time's destructive impact on a career, even a Beatles. But the difference between John Lennon and Lefty Frizzell, or even Elvis Presley, is a big one and its name is Yoko Ono. John died in December 1980, less than a month after the release of the Lennon's album, Double Fantasy. The following June, the first posthumous release was issued, an eight-record set of John's individual solo albums. That same month, June of 1981, Yoko released her solo album, Season of Glass. These are songs she recorded in the months following her husband's death, and without question, this record contains some of Yoko Ono's most accessible music. John did not participate in the making of Season of Glass, but the album cover shows a close-up of Lennon's blood-spattered glasses. Because of this, some distributors refused to carry it, which is too bad. The John Lennon collection was released in 1982. This was designed to replace Shaved Fish, an album of solo hits that John himself had assembled five years earlier. In 1983, Yoko released an album of audio recordings called Heartplay, subtitled An Unfinished Dialogue. The cover also calls it a spoken word documentary. The record consists of excerpts of the couple's 1980 conversations with interviewers David Sheff, who receives no album credit. There are a few interesting and sometimes unsettling sections here, as when John talks about an artist dying in public presumably meaning the death of one's career, and when he reflects on the shooting death of Martin Luther King. But for the most part, John speaks excitedly about fatherhood, Yoko, and the forthcoming double fantasy record. 
This spoken word heart play project was followed by the 1984 album Milk and Honey, made up of the partially completed recordings John and Yoko were working on at the time of John's death. 1986 saw the release of audio and video recordings of a Madison Square Garden benefit concert held by the Lennons in 1972. So far, three logical new records, a new best of collection, music from an unfinished project, and a live recording, and two unexpected releases, an interview record, and a solo music album by Ono. Although largely forgotten now, the albums Heart Play and Season of Glass are noteworthy for providing a foretaste of things to come under Yoko's control. The question of what to do next was made more difficult by John's lack of enthusiasm for live events. Unlike deceased artists like Elvis or Jimi Hendrix, Lennon had almost no concert tapes in the vaults. In the few instances when John had performed for an audience, these were for the most part already released. Studio material also seemed to be a dead end. In one of his last interviews, Lennon was asked about unissued recordings. John said, there's nothing. I don't have boxes of unreleased stuff at all. He stressed that everything I've ever done is out. But that assessment didn't stop Yoko Ono from searching, just as it wouldn't have stopped me. In the vaults were found a few abandoned songs, one recorded for but rejected from the Mind Games album, and another six recorded during the Walls and Bridges sessions. These seven originals were filled out with three cover songs considered for Lennon's rock and roll album. This patchwork of unearthed tracks was issued in 1986 on a record called Men Love Avenue, named for the Liverpool Street where John Lennon grew up. The recordings are nothing special, but neither are they embarrassing. They are worth having. And I think this backhanded compliment holds true for most of the material released since Lennon's death. The songs from the vaults are uneven, but that is not surprising since even during his life, Lennon's post-Beatles output was always hit and miss. For example, when is the last time you sat and listened to the album Sometime in New York City? Yoko later rounded up other orphan recordings and released them in 1998 on a four-CD set called John Lennon Anthology. This strikingly blue box included Lennon's three songs from a 1974 Elton John concert, plus two live songs from a John Sinclair protest rally, and two more recorded at the Apollo Theater, all from 1971. But the emphasis of this box was on Lennon's home recordings, plus demos and alternate takes from his solo albums. This four-CD anthology set spawned two truncated releases. The first was put out immediately called Once Upon a Time, a single disc that offered edited highlights from the box set. Six years later, in 2004, a CD called John Lennon Acoustic was released. It was implicitly promoted as being 16 unissued tracks by Lennon. Only after fans purchased the disc did they discover that over half of the recordings on acoustic were taken from the Blue Anthology box. I stress that the fans needed to figure this out for themselves, since there was no acknowledgement of any kind in the CD's notes that nine of these tracks could be found on an earlier release. We were not pleased, but grudgingly acknowledged that, although Acoustic was deceptively packaged, we were glad to have the seven new recordings found here. Unfortunately, this would not be the last instance of misleading promotion associated with John's posthumous catalog. Since his death, most of the new John Lennon releases have recycled the material that John chose to put out during his lifetime, hits collections and anthologies of his best-known songs. 
And with the finite amount of material available, this makes sense. But the rate at which these old songs have been repackaged strikes me as excessive. A new collection of old material, whether it be an album, a CD, or a box set, has been released on average every three years since John's 1980 death. With more than a dozen of these compilations of Lennon's post-Beatle recordings on the market, most fans were satisfied. Many of them own multiple copies of pretty much every recording John Lennon ever made. I know I do. By the mid-1980s, Yoko probably realized that she had sold about as many of her late husband's records as she was going to, at least for a while. What to do next? As a self-proclaimed performance artist, logical arenas for Yoko were stage and cinema. She commissioned a documentary film that became Imagine John Lennon, which had its premiere in 1988. The producers combed through hundreds of hours of footage to put together this film tribute. It is definitely worth seeing, and although they were not involved in the project, it's said that the other three Beatles had mainly positive reactions to the movie. The public also liked it. But later, there were projects that did not fare as well. In 2005 came the Broadway musical Lennon. It closed after 49 performances. The New York Times called it a jerry-rigged musical shrine. Confusion was part of the problem. As the biographical play progressed during the course of a performance, the audience saw the role of John Lennon portrayed by several actors and actresses of different genders and nationalities. I believe Yoko was going for inclusiveness, but it led to problems. So much so that the script would be rewritten with one actor now playing John. But even after being streamlined and simplified, the musical production Lennon failed to reach the masses and it was certainly not successful enough to be made into a movie a la Jersey Boys. Yoko may have been hoping for something along the lines of Amadeus, but Lennon had more in common with Broadway's troubled productions of Cape Man and Turn Off the Dark. After the Lennon stage show closed, Yoko commissioned a book to be written on John. There were already numerous biographies about her husband on the market, from hagiographies to indictments. Her goal was for something different. Yoko asked a variety of her famous friends to give their personal reflections on John. The book was called Memories of John Lennon. It certainly is personal, but the narratives soon become a series of stories recounting where the writer was when hearing of Lennon's death. More useful books about John have been written. One can understand a widow wanting to mount these projects in order to keep her husband's name in the public eye and to make him appear relevant, reissuing his music, producing a play, commissioning books, these are all understandable and could be seen as acts of love and remembrance. But in early 2010, Yoko Ono and son Sean Lennon embarked on an endeavor that was hard for anyone to defend. Yoko and Sean sold footage from a John Lennon interview for use in a TV commercial by French carmaker Citron. In this commercial, John tells the interviewer, and now prospective car buyers, to avoid nostalgia and don't copy the past, start something new. Just like these car makers, I guess. Reaction was swift and fierce. Yoko remained silent about the ad's hostile reaction, but Sean went on the attack. Saying that he had no new music by his father to promote, he was hoping to keep his dad alive in the public consciousness through other avenues. Sean said the ad was designed so that young people would get to know about John Lennon. I guess Yoko and Sean were targeting that demographic of adolescents who bought wildly expensive cars before they could drive. If public awareness was the goal here, 
Well done. Universal criticism was unrelenting. During one heated encounter, Sean called a journalist a peasant, among other things, before referring to himself as a musician and a businessman. Soon, Sean abandoned his defense strategy altogether and proclaimed ignorance of the ad campaign. I'm not sure how many cars John's image sold, but no one was buying Sean's story about his lack of involvement with the ad. Sean also said that he and Yoko didn't care about the money paid by the carmaker for use of John's image. No one believed that either. Artists sell their music, and that is their right. Whether it's Bob Dylan licensing I Want You to sell Chobani yogurt, or Led Zeppelin singing for Cadillac. If a writer owns a song, it's that artist's right to allow its use to sell a product. Music is not the only thing for sale. Famous musicians can simply lend their name and image to a product, as Keith Richards did in 2008 for Louis Vuitton luggage. Few are able to resist the breezes of an economic windfall. As Mad Magazine taught me long ago, when money talks, nobody criticizes its accent. This podcast was inspired in part by the recent John Lennon box set retrospective called Gimme Some Truth, which purports to be the ultimate mix of these songs. I have already talked about the need for another collection of Lennon's music. There isn't one. But Gimme Some Truth strikes me as particularly galling and unnecessary. The claim of ultimate mix implies that the previously released audio of these records was problematic. The sound mixes John Lennon had approved. Final authorization of these new ultimate mixes is attributed to Yoko Ono. This means that the ears of an 88-year-old are revamping recordings that were already okayed by a much younger John Lennon, the artist who made the recordings. This process, however, is nothing new. In 2010, Yoko embarked on a similar remix project for the Lennon's Double Fantasy album. Then, in 2018, on the lavish box set for John's Imagine album, and again more recently in 2020 with the Gimme Some Truth Best Of anthology. Now, only months after Gimme Some Truth, comes the expanded box set of the Plastic Ono Band album from 1970, the favorite of John's solo records for many fans. Here again, an ultimate mix is promised when there was nothing wrong with the sound of the original John-approved release. I really like this Stark album, but as with the Imagine album, I think I'll have to live with the original mixes by John found on my record, my CD, and my 8-track tape. Another reason I have problems when I think of Yoko at the mixing console is her history with such projects. When the album Live Peace in Toronto was being readied for a 1995 CD release, Yoko Ono decided that John Lennon needed assistance in singing Dizzy Miss Lizzie properly. So, Yoko Ono added her own vocals onto the mix of a song where she had not previously appeared. She had been present on some of John's numbers at this concert, but not on that one. When Live Peace in Toronto first came out in 1969, I remember telling people then that I would have paid to have Yoko's voice mixed out of those tapes. John himself was not immune to controversial audio mixes. After he and Yoko joined the Mothers of Invention on stage at the Fillmore East in June of 1971, Lennon took the tapes of the show and mixed them in a way that Frank Zappa felt was not representative of the performance. Lennon's version appears on the concert section of Some Time in New York City. Zappa issued his own mix of the same performance on an album called Playground Psychotics. 
He also complained that Lennon had inappropriately taken composer credit for a song of Zappa's they played at the concert. But that's another story. The band Elephant's Memory also took issue with some of Yoko's mixed decisions. This group accompanied John and Yoko for their two Madison Square Garden charity concerts held in 1972. Audio and video excerpts from these two concerts were released in 1986. First, members of Elephant's Memory complained that Yoko's recordings focused on the afternoon concert, which the band says was weaker than the evening's performance. Group members also claimed that Ono's edit of the video was misleading, making it appear that her role at the concert was more substantial than it really was. I wasn't there, but I'm not one to doubt an elephant's memory. There is another reason I have reservations about the new Imagine and Plastic Ono band boxes. I feel that as a fan, I am being purposefully misled again in a way similar to the John Lennon acoustic CD, but on a larger scale. Promotion for these box sets announced that each would contain vast amounts of rare material. Implicit in this statement is that these rare tracks are previously unreleased recordings. When, in fact, most of these outtakes and demos have been available for decades. First on the Blue Anthology box from 1998 I talked about a couple of minutes ago. And again on the John Lennon Signature Box set from 2010. Tracks that have been previously released multiple times are not so rare. To be fair, as with the acoustic CD, a few recordings on the Imagine and the Plastic Ono band boxes are newly released, but not many. And like the acoustic CD, documentation for the purportedly rare tracks is incomplete or misleading. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not a hater. I own Yoko Ono albums. Several, in fact. When people look at my record shelves, there is one reaction I can count on. Laughter, followed by the question, Why do you have these Yoko Ono albums? My response, and I mean it, is to tell the visitor, John is on some of those records. How can I not have them? Visitors are unconvinced, but those Ono albums, like Feeling the Space, Fly, and Approximately Infinite Universe, are definitely part of my John Lennon collection. However, my civility and tolerance extends only so far with Mrs. Lennon. She seemed to make John happy, and I'm glad about that. But when a colleague once insisted to me that Yoko would have been a major recording artist regardless of her connection to John, I draw the line. I told him, look, if I were married to John Lennon, I could have a record contract too. You know, I thought I had a handle on this John Lennon podcast, and then something happened. I had finished writing the script, but before recording it, I went for a haircut. My barber is a 32-year-old woman, happy to discuss most any topic, as a good bartender or barber must. Assuring her that I would not judge her response, I asked if she could name the four Beatles for me. She panicked, but managed to say Paul and Ringo pretty quickly. She asked me for the other names. I said John Lennon and George Harrison. John's name I recognized, she told me, but George I never would have gotten. I thanked her for the honesty. I asked one follow-up question. Can you tell me anything about John? Famous songs or anything you know about his wife? Nope and no. Give Peace a Chance, Imagine, and Yoko Ono all meant nothing to her. So maybe Yoko and Sean are right to keep pumping out those anthologies of John's music. Maybe. By the way, Paul shouldn't get too cocky. After I mentioned his full name to my barber, for the rest of the conversation, she referred to him as Paul McCarthy. Actually, I think Ringo wins that round. This episode of The Vinyl Approach has been called John Lennon, I'm Happy Just to Dance with You. And that's the truth. 
I enjoy his music. I don't need or expect anything else from him. And yes, I know it's George and not John who sings lead on I'm Happy Just to Dance With You. I've always liked that song, where we hear a great example of John's pretty mean rhythm guitar, as he once described it. In earlier days, we used to ask one another, who's your favorite Beatle? John has always been mine, and in some odd way I feel protective of his image. As such, I don't agree with some of the ways his legacy has been marketed. But in spite of my barber, I believe that a lot of John's work will stand the test of time with or without an endless parade of reissues and remixes. And if it doesn't, well, to quote a famous TV car salesman, people should avoid nostalgia and start something new. I'm Tom Wilmoth, and this has been The Vinyl Approach. A quick reminder here that each of these Vinyl Approach episodes has an accompanying playlist on Spotify. If you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. Soundbites is available on Amazon. Join me next time in two weeks when we will talk about Willie Nelson's duet recordings. Is that a mixed bag?